William Blake, Songs of Innocence and Experience Although we know him primarily as a poet, Blake worked as a printer, and his unique work combines the two artistic realms, making him one of the first true multimedia artists. He was a true visionary. Blake had visions of God and angels as a child. In fact, his practice of what he called illuminated printing may have been the product of one of these revelations. He claimed that a spirit that he saw rising from his dead brother suggested the method. Blake used copper plates etched with acid. The resulting prints underwent various colored washes, and each copy is unique. There is a wonderful website, the William Blake Archive, at www.blakearchive.org, which has various copies and allows direct comparisons among them. In fact, Blake's work not only survives, but thrives on the Internet, exposing his work to a far wider audience than he could ever have dreamed, because most of his volumes were only printed in runs of a few dozen copies. For example, there are only 27 copies of Songs of Innocence that remain. The Blake Archive website also provides much more detail on the printing history of Songs of Innocence and Experience. Just click on the Songs of Innocence link. Blake was an admirer of Mary Wollstonecraft, and as we will see, he held very unorthodox views on Christianity and established a very complex mythology of divine powers, influences, or forces, for example, Rintra in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Songs of Innocence was originally published in 1789. Five years later, Blake published Songs of Innocence and Experience. He continued to publish Songs of Innocence separately, but Songs of Experience were only ever published in a volume along with Songs of Innocence. The ironies of the speaker's voice in these poems are often noted. In his title page for the combined Songs of Innocence and Experience, Blake refers to the, quote, two contrary states of the human soul, end quote. It is very important to keep in mind that for Blake, this does not refer to a simple formula whereby innocence equals good and experience equals bad. Sometimes, the innocent are vulnerable to exploitation, for example, and those with experience might be trapped in rigid states of mind. Nor does the innocence-experience opposition represent a simple chronological progression. Both states are possible at all times. For example, in The Lamb from Songs of Innocence, the speaker understands the theological concept of the Lamb of God. We notice that there are contrasting poems with the same titles in the two versions, Innocence and Experience. Examples include The Chimney Sweeper, Holy Thursday, and The Pairing of Infant Joy and Infant Sorrow. Let's look at the contrast between the different versions of some of these poems. It does involve some bouncing back and forth between Songs of Innocence and songs of experience, but I think it is a more effective strategy than reading the poems through in sequence. Moreover, it will help us better appreciate Blake's ironies. 
Clearly, Blake invited us to read this way when he used the same subjects and often the same titles in the two books and subtitled his combined work, Showing the Two Contrary States of the Human Soul. Let's begin with the Lamb. Little Lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life, and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, soft as clothing, woolly, bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek, and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child, and thou a lamb. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. This is a poem that on one hand reflects childlike innocence, and yet the speaker of the poem seems to understand the concept of the Lamb of God. This entire poem is about the creative act and the relationship between creature and creator, repeatedly asking the question, Who made thee? Which suggests not just that the speaker wants to know who it was who created the Lamb, but what is the Lamb's creator like? The tiger from Songs of Experience is the obvious pairing. In fact, it's the most anthologized poem in the English language, and like the lamb, the tiger is about the creative act and about the relationship between the creature and the creator. Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire, and what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil? What dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? What kind of creator could create both a lamb and a tiger. What is fearful symmetry? It is suggestive of our old friend, the sublime. I'm intrigued by line 14. In what furnace was thy brain? In other words, what kind of God could create such a creature? Did he who make the lamb make thee? Another provocative question. There is a sense of awe here that the same creator could make both lamb and tiger. We should also note that the first and last stanzas of four lines are almost, but not exactly, identical. Blake changes the word could to dare when he repeats the first stanza at the end. 
there is an ironic contrast here. In the poem The Little Black Boy, Blake plays with the duality of black and white. He not only contrasts the skin color of the two boys, but the speaker says, I am black, but oh, my soul is white. And by the way, this poem is reason enough to visit the online Blake Archive. That address again, www.blakearchive.org. If you do look at nothing else in the archive, use the archive's features to compare the various copies that are available. Because Blake hand-tinted each copy individually, each is unique, and in this poem in particular, he deliberately emphasizes this uniqueness because the skin tones of the two boys differ considerably. In some versions, the black and white boys are indistinguishable. In others, the differences in skin colors are very distinct. Blake plays with this duality in the context of the slavery and slave trade debate. The poem situates the moment of freedom from skin color against the black boy's anxiety that the English boy can only love him if he's white. This begs the question, what do you think that Blake was trying to do by printing such a range of skin colors? There are also two versions of the poem, The Chimney Sweeper, poems of social protest. As an historical note here, in Blake's day, chimneys were often cleaned by small boys because they were small enough to fit through the small spaces. In fact, sometimes they were sold into this life by their parents in the desperation of poverty. There were a number of serious health consequences as these boys often suffered from burns, black lung disease, and cancer of the scrotum. They were often malnourished as well. Protective legislation had been passed in 1788, but it was rarely, if ever, enforced. In the first version of The Chimney Sweeper from Songs of Innocence, Blake's speaker begins, When my mother died, I was very young, and my father sold me, while yet my tongue could scarcely cry, Weep, 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 weep. So your chimneys I sweep, and in soot I sleep. Here, we see that his father sold him into this life after his mother's death. One of the brilliant ironies of the poem is that the third line has the boy scarcely able to cry, weep, weep. He means to say sweep, but he is so young that his lisp make the word, makes the word come out weep, which, of course, reminds us that he is weeping for his miserable fate. There's little Tom Dacry who cried when his head that curled like a lamb's back was shaved. So I said, Hush, Tom, never mind it, for when your head's bare, you know that the soot cannot spoil your white hair. And so he was quiet, and that very night, as Tom was asleeping, he had such a sight that thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned, and Jack, were all of them locked up in coffins of black. Here, the coffins of black is a play on the chimneys in which the boys are locked up, but the death imagery is obvious as well. 
The poem goes on. And by came an angel who had a bright key, and he opened the coffins and let them all free. Then down a green plain, leaping, laughing, they run and wash in a river and shine in the sun. Then naked and white, all their bags left behind, they rise upon clouds and sport in the wind. And the angel told Tom, if he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want joy. And so Tom awoke, and we rose in the dark, and got with our bags and our brushes to work. Though the morning was cold, Tom was happy and warm, so if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. There is a real contrast in that last stanza between the dream and the reality of waking up from the dream depicted in the previous two stanzas. The boys are rising in the dark and cold, The last line, so if all do their duty, they need not fear harm, is so pathetic. A line from a conduct book popular at the time. The second version of the poem from Songs of Experience is much shorter. Only three stanzas. A little black thing in the snow, crying weep, weep in notes of woe. Where are they, father and mother, say? They are both gone up to the church to pray. Because I was happy upon the heath and smiled among the winter's snow, they clothed me in the clothes of death and taught me to sing the notes of woe. And because I am happy and dance and sing, they think they have done me no injury and are gone to praise God and his priest and king who make up a heaven of our misery. Both versions of The Chimney Sweeper depict social injustice. I would suggest that the second, the one from experience, is sharper and more critical. The innocence version's sin or injustice seems to be what is being done to the children, and it is from their perspective. In the second version, the speaker seems more aware of what is being done to these children, and the sin here seems to be hypocrisy. The father and mother have gone to church to pray and praise God and his priest and king. There is an obvious indictment of them for being so outwardly pious while permitting their children to be in such awful circumstances. In addition to the obvious issue of the chimney sweepers themselves, could this pair of poems also remind us of the slave trade, the white and black imagery, the exploitation, in fact, selling of children, and the angel with his false promises from the first version could all represent aspects of the slave trade. For the two versions of Holy Thursday, we might ask a similar question. I might note here that Holy Thursday does not refer to the Thursday before Easter, which is called that in some countries, but rather the Thursday before Ascension Day, which is the Friday, 40 days after Easter Sunday. By tradition, on this Holy Thursday, the thousands of children from charity schools in London were publicly paraded to St. Paul's Cathedral to celebrate how lucky they were, and the children were supposed to sing their thanks to king and country. "'Twas on a holy Thursday, their innocent faces clean, came children walking to and two in red and blue and green. Gray-headed beetles walking before with wands as white as snow, till into the high dome of Paul's they like Thames' waters flow. 
Oh, what a multitude they seemed, these flowers of London town. Seated in companies they sit with radiance all their own. The hum of multitudes was there, but multitudes of lambs, thousands of little boys and girls raising their innocent hands. Now, like a mighty wild, they raise to heaven the voice of song. Or like harmonious thunderings the seats of heaven among. Beneath them sit the aged man, wise guardians of the poor. Then cherish pity, lest you drive an angel from your door. The Innocence version depicts this procession more explicitly, this scene of the children walking into the church, scrubbed and dressed in school uniforms. They are in contrast to the gray-headed beetles, Beatles, with a D, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is derived from Old or Middle High German and means one who makes a proclamation, a herald, crier or usher of a law court or bailiff, a mace-bearer in a procession. And more to our purpose, a parish constable keeps order in the parish, punishes offenders, acts as a messenger, and this parish meaning has existed at least since the late 1500s. The emphasis in this version uh, is on a public act of charity, orphans in church on Holy Thursday, but there is an implied and unstated irony. The experienced version, however, is much sharper and doesn't depict the act of charity, but asks questions about why. Is this a holy thing to see in a rich and fruitful land, babes reduced to misery, fed with cold and usurous hand? Is that trembling cry a song? Can it be a song of joy? And so many children poor? It is a land of poverty. And their sun does never shine, and their fields are bleak and bare, and their ways are filled with thorns. It is eternal winter there. For where'er the sun does shine, and where'er the rain does fall, babes should never hunger there, nor poverty the mind appall. Another poem that is a natural follow-up to Holy Thursday is Blake's poem, London. I wandered through each chartered street, near where the chartered Thames does flow, and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every ban, the mine-forged monocles I hear. How the chimney-sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most, through midnight streets I hear, how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear, and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. The images are very sharp here. The poem indicts both church and state, both of which, to Blake, oppress our minds, the mind-forged monocles the speaker hears. The youthful harlot's curse refers to prostitutes, and the line, bless the newborn infant's tear, may well refer to syphilitic blindness, transmitted to babies from their diseased mothers. There's some wordplay with the word chartered in the first two lines, because it refers both to a city's charter, 
sometimes granted by official decree, and also to limits or rules, and Blake was a famous critic of limits and rules. A few more brief comments. Two versions of divine image, one the divine image and the other a divine image. The two versions are once again very different, innocence emphasizing virtues, mercy, pity, peace, and love, and experience focusing on vices, cruelty, jealousy, terror, and secrecy. But there is a rather unique three-way relationship among these two poems and the human abstract. Ironically, while the human abstract is filled with imagery, the versions of divine image have no imagery. They're about abstractions. Note also that the human abstract reveals that the virtues are brought about in consequence of human selfishness. A few final notes in the fly. Once again, we must look at more than just the words, but the illustrations as well. The plate reveals what the text does not. The girl has a fly swatter. Yet both children are identified with the fly. And there's also a question about how we should read the stanzas. Does whether we read the stanzas down or across make a difference? The Garden of Love reveals Blake being very critical of organized religion as a force of repression and prohibition. Rules, restrictions, locked gates, thou shalt nots, and graves, all in a place of a green where the speaker used to play freely.